Today, I'm talking to Hamish Aubrey Dickinson, who is a record producer, a musician, a tour manager, and all other things like that involved with music. And he's been playing music for a very long time. He started when he was four years old. And I was just going to ask you, what can you actually remember playing music at that age? Or is that just an anecdote? No, I genuinely can remember. Um, I'm lucky enough that, like, because my parents were so heavily musically kind of that's that's their job and that's kind of where they came from like we were so heavily influenced by them at the time that like I've never forgotten anything that really happened around that time and the the first instrument I tried well started playing when I was four was the violin and I'll never forget it because I was just not very good at it and um when you're that age and you play an instrument they you know like and you're at primary school or whatever they always try and make you um you know, like play little concerts and stuff for your classmates and stuff. And I was petrified of doing it at the age of four or five, obviously, as a four or five year old would be. And, uh, you know, it just sounded like a strangling a dead cat kind of situation. And um, I was going to say, because violin is the classic one that is horrible to hear someone practice. So yeah. you're really in at the deep end. With yeah, that. exactly. I mean, you know, like when you're a kid that age, you kind of, You'd, your like palette also isn't quite as discernible in terms of your like sonic palette so I suppose like you know I probably didn't know how terrible it sounded but uh yeah like as I kind of as I kind of now look back on it with the you know the power of hindsight I I and also you know like when you grow older your parents can be a bit more honest with you and my mum is always the first to remind me how terrible I was at the violin when I first started so you know <laughs> I've I've never forgotten it yeah because when you were a teenager, you got more into like the classic like band instruments, guitar and drums and stuff like that. Did that make you drop things like the violin, or did you still do you still play it now? So weirdly, that you it's funny you asked that actually. Like obviously, given that we're all in this sweet lockdown, my mum has been clearing out the attic at my my family home, which is back down south, and. Uh, she sent me a photo on WhatsApp the other day and was like, do you want this? And it was just a picture of my violin from when I was like five. Um, and oh, like, the artifact. Well, you know, and I don't know, I don't really want it as such, but at the same time, like now that I run a recording studio, it is always a useful thing just to have like instruments around because you never know when it's going to come in handy. Um, so yeah, that's on its way back to me um, after, hmm. well, 15 years at this point. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't. No, I don't play the violin anymore. I still play the saxophone, which is the instrument that I I took up after I kind of gave up on the violin because I was terrible at it. Um, I still play, still play that. Like not as much as I probably should, but I I play it for you know when bands are recording with me and stuff. And there was there was a band that I did maybe two years ago. I did an EP for them, and they have a trumpet player in their band, and they basically decided that on some of the parts that they'd done they wanted to kind of beef it up and put some more harmonies and stuff in so they asked me to play and i ended up playing on nearly every single song on that record um and uh you know it's it's little things as well like people find out that you play the violin uh, play the saxophone and they're like oh yeah we'd love to have the saxophone played at our wedding or whatever so you know you always get like <laughs> those kind of things and it, it it does come out every now and then um and it's also for me it's quite nice just to pick it up every now and then because i'm now I'm, I guess, considered a professional drummer. I, I'm always behind a drum kit, so it's nice to kind of walk away from that and play something different for a little bit. Yeah, another string to your bow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you mentioned your parents. They both studied at Trinity Music College. Yeah. So what was their involvement in, in music then? Because if they went on to... Uh, have they become musicians? So or? 
my basically the the long and short of it is that they they both went to study music at trinity my dad is a pianist and my mum plays clarinet um and they are like anybody that goes to music college you know their ultimate goal was that they wanted to be professional musicians in the sort of like you know playing in an orchestra or playing for the bbc philharmonic or a famous orchestra or in my dad's case he wanted to be a concert pianist and kind of tour the world doing that but in you know the sort of standard procedure they met each other and then back in the day it was kind of common to get married early and have kids early and you know that very quickly puts a stop to all of those kind of dreams so um my mum they both still play my mum teaches clarinet um at i think four or five different uh private schools down south and my dad Mm -hmm. went and got like i guess what will be considered a real job in inverted commas he works uh as a marketing man an international marketing manager but he still plays piano he was the organist for their local church for 30 years um which he's moved away from uh since his parents started getting ill and he needed a bit more time to focus on them um but my mum him and a couple of other people have like a little quintet that they do like weddings and stuff with and that kind of stuff so they still play a lot um and my Mm. dad runs like the local village choir and you know little bits like that yeah, I suppose if you were into music enough to go and study it, you know, that passion for it's never really going to go away, is it? You're always going to want to be involved with music in some way. Yeah, and I think if you're like, without wanting to sound sort of big-headed about it, I think if you have a natural talent for it, which we're very lucky as a family to have that, um, it it's very hard to just kind of let it go. And, and, you know, you always have this yearning to want to play instruments, even if you're not doing it for financial gain, you know, it's just a great, it's a great way of kind of, you know, I say a form of catharsis for a lot of people and that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely like that in our family, especially for my parents. So how about as a listener, what kind of music were you into when you were very young and what made you, want to play a certain style or a certain genre so we um and my dad was amazing actually for like obviously they're but they're both classically trained musicians so we were constantly surrounded by um orchestral music and and kind of classical music my dad's very into russian piano music so you know composers like Rachmaninoff and that kind of thing um so that was always being played because either my dad was playing it my mum was playing it on the clarinet or they were listening to it but my dad also was very into like pop culture still is very into pop culture one of his favorite bands is slipknot which is kind of funny but he went i think when i was maybe three and my older brother was six will have been six my dad gave us um each a cassette tape and on my cassette tape on one side it had the very best of joe cocker and on the other side it had uh, never mind the bollocks by the Sex Pistols, and my brother had uh, like the best of David Bowie on one side of his tape, and on the other side of his tape, he had Licensed to Ill by the Beastie Boys. So like, <laughs> we, and and like we honestly like we had those little like Tommy brand tape player things with a microphone attached to the side when we were kids. I and think like, I had one of those. Actually. Yeah, yeah, dude. Like, I think most kids had one, and we that we honestly we just for you know 16 or 18 hours a day we'd just play those tapes to death we were lucky we we grew up listening to like everything from you know truly like uh, genius classical composers and, and instrumentalists all the way through to i guess what would be considered genius you know pop singers and and rock and roll and punk and all that kind of stuff so yeah we were really lucky in that sense 
Yeah, the whole spectrum you've got in there. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's it's really helped in terms of like what I do now and how I interact with the artists that I work with, be it on tour or whether it's in the studio. You know, I have this kind of, I'm very lucky to have like a huge back catalogue of kind of influence and, and places to take information from that I, I find it quite easier to kind of adapt to any situation. Because that's something I'd imagine would be difficult for you or not for you specifically, but for a um, like a session musician, is to successfully communicate between you and the band what they actually want from you. But I suppose yeah. if you've grown up listening to everything, you maybe your frame of reference is is much larger. Yeah, and I think on the flip side of that as well, you know that they, when I'm working with artists in any capacity, whether I'm playing for them or recording with them or or you know anything. It, it works the other way around as well in that, you know, like they might not have noticed that a chord progression in their song sounds very similar to, I don't know, like a David Bowie chord progression. And, you know, like, have you thought about maybe using a similar style of production or whatever, you know, and, and you can kind of pull on these things and be like, Hey, look, this sounds quite a lot like this. And it, it might work if you put this drum beat to it, or you had this kind of like guitar lick or something. And, and it is cool it, it, the way that you can flip it either way. You know, it's really nice to always continuously learn stuff from people. And it's also really nice to be able to kind of, you know, like give some information over to another person that may not have realized that it was ever there. Do you find it difficult to um, go out on tour with a band as a session musician, as a touring band member, if their music isn't something that you're hugely into? like yes and no i mean essentially the most important thing is to always be professional about it you know and if someone's willing to take you out and well pay for you to go out and tour with them and, and play drums for them or play whatever instrument it is you know ultimately you're the reason you're doing it is because you like playing your instrument so it doesn't it shouldn't really matter what you're playing um but you know obviously that's not always the way it goes and there are times when you'll play for bands that you're just kind of like this is just not like don't enjoy this at all and I, for me it principally comes from like I'm very lucky in that I haven't ever toured with a band that aren't very good as musicians but I have worked with bands in the studio where I've been playing drums with them and they're not particularly competent at their instruments so you end up like without sounding awful but kind of you know like overtaking them and, and then constantly trying to like almost like diminish your ability to match theirs <laughs> if that makes sense Stoop which, to which their and, level. yeah and that's that's a really tough thing to do um and like i'm in by no way like do i consider myself a gr like the world's greatest drummer or or anything but you know, I'm, I'm obviously, I feel like I'm obviously good enough that people want me to play on their stuff. And that's, that's a great privilege for me to have. Um, but at the same time, when you come across things like that, it's a bit like, you know, you've, you've really got to like grin and bear it and try and work your way through it and, you know, continuously be professional and pretend like it's the best thing you're doing. It's, it's, it is tough, but yeah, you, you, you just got to have a, you know, a straight head and, and just kind of go at it like you would anything else. I guess you must also have the opposite experience where you play with musicians who are, you know, do have the same sort of musical ability and taste to you and you, you come up with something that's really great. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think I, I was, I was very lucky actually. I, I it, kind of funny. I, I worked with a band on their debut album, uh, from Lincoln that, you know, they're like a small, small time band, but they're 
I think they're really good anyway. They're called Saboteurs and they basically, we'd done some like a kind of demo EP that they'd come and just like, you know, bashed out in a couple of days in like January of 2018. And then in September, they'd booked in to come and do a debut record full length. And I was really looking forward to welcoming them back. And I, the week before we started tracking, my uh, fiance and I were on holiday in Spain and I got a message from the singer of the band basically saying that there'd been a big falling out in the band and the bass player and the drummer had quit and that they were a bit like, we, you know, should, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to postpone the recording or, you know, what, what, what do you think? And I was just like, well, listen, like, if you're happy for me to play drums on it, I'll play drums on it and you can keep your dates and, and we'll kind of get it done. And they were great. They were like, yeah, we'd, we'd love you to. We've, we've always really admired your drumming ability. So that sounds good. Um, and we, you know, I spent, I think maybe like three or four days, like they'd sent me all the demos that they'd made for this album. So I kind of had like a rough idea of what the songs were like, but obviously all the drums were just like really simple, like keyboard drums that someone had like plugged into logic not as a drummer, you know, their guitarist had just done it so that he could record the rest of the guitars to sort of get an idea of it. So when it came to it, it was a case of me almost going in blind in terms of the actual drum parts. And it was very much like a, they were just kind of like, we're giving you free reign to play drums, how you want to play drums and how you think that they'd fit to this song as a drummer. And as someone that's into like alternative rock music, and I was just kind of like, okay, but you need to tell me when you don't like something that I've done. Otherwise, we're not going to get anywhere. And um, it was just a really great experience. It wasn't really until I was like a teenager that I started paying attention to the production on music. It's more like a secondary thing. It was, you know, the melodies and the and the lyrics or something and then it was like people would talk about oh they've got this producer and who did these albums and I wouldn't really understand what that meant until I was a little bit older yeah um and I just wanted to you know you're a producer that's one of the main things that you do who are the producers where you were like okay this is you know this is really adding something to the record this is something that's like another instrument this production style that's a, that's a really good question actually because I think well I think before I say anything like I think what needs it for this is my my opinion on this anyway and and there are plenty of people that would argue otherwise but essentially the history is that a, the a producer of a band back in the day was someone that would essentially be given a budget and then within that budget they had to pay themselves pay all the extra musicians pay for the studio time pay anything that had to be done and they had to at the end of a period of time within that budget they had to have given over a physical recording um, and it wasn't necessarily like it, it was basically just this like umbrella term for this one person that was kind of in charge of everything financially as well as kind of like technically and all the rest of it. And I think that and this was at a time when, you know, studios had an engineer and an assistant engineer and a tape operative and all these other people, whereas now because equipment is so cheap and it's so easy to record things like we're doing it right now, you know, and it, all of those jobs kind of ended up becoming one person's job. And I think that for me was when I started understanding like, okay, in for my generation, like a producer wasn't so much just the guy that kind of dealt with like ensuring that this 
this record would come out at the end and it was going to be the way that the, the label wanted it and the managers wanted it and everything else, that that engineering position or that producer position became everything. You had to be a musician yourself. You ended up having to be able to run any tech analysis and all that kind of stuff where, you know, you used to have had like an assistant that would do that for you and be more qualified or whatever. And it's become this thing where like now my interests aren't as simple as just kind of like making songs better it has to, I have to understand the science behind what, how my microphone works and how my interface works and how my computer works and all this kind of stuff because if it goes wrong, I'm the only one there that has to be able to deal with it. And I think for mm. me, my biggest realisation and influence on that was when I discovered um, a man called Eric Valentine who uh, is responsible for, I mean, some crazy records, but he's he's worked with Weezer and he did the Songs for the Deaf record by, can't think of the Queens of the Stone Age, and he did the Smash Mouth records, and he's worked with just, like, uh, Taking Back Sunday and just all these, like, crazy bands that I grew up listening to and I loved, and I suddenly discovered who he was and I kept seeing his name appear and I did some research, and it, you know, it very quickly became apparent that not only was he able to record and mix these great sounding records but he like he actually owns his own company that builds hardware so you know he makes his own compressors and he makes his own microphones and he makes his own cables and all this kind of stuff and i was like that without this guy and all of his intellect and kind of motion towards that stuff and like none of these records would sound anywhere near what they do today and you know, you can listen to half of those records now, you know, 20 odd years later, some of them, and they sound like they were recorded yesterday. And it's kind of, that for me was like a real revelation. And I was like, oh, okay, like that's the level that you need to be working at to be recognized as like a genuine asset to a, to making a record. There's a guy called Jerry Finn who is dead now, unfortunately, but, um, he was really my my like even before Eric Valentine, I saw Jerry Finn's name because he was responsible for uh, like the Blink One Eighty Two records, so like Enema of the State, Take Away Pants and Jackets, self titled. He produced and mixed all of them, and he was involved in like bands like AFI and Rancid and all of these kind of punk and pop punk bands that I grew up listening to. And when he was, I think he was like 33 or 35, he had a cerebral hemorrhage and died completely out of the blue. Um, but like he was responsible for these records that I spent so many hours of my life listening to and, and really getting involved in that that was like, he was really my first person that I was like, okay, so that's what a record is supposed to sound like. Um, and then from that, that's when that's when I started diving into finding out about other engineers and producers and, and mix engineers and stuff. And that's where I came across people like Eric Valentine and was just like, okay, like these are on another level of abilities. On Who's Flying the Plane, we do a thing called Hidden Gem. And this is the opportunity for you to shine a light on something that you think is just gone by the wayside or something that hasn't got enough attention so this could be for you you're working in music could be an album or a band or something like that it doesn't have to be but what would you like to be your hidden gem oh that's a okay um i'm, I'm gonna go with the music stuff because i think it's important but there's uh i worked with a band in october last year and i 
I had no idea anything about them, but the job was passed to me from a friend of mine who was unable to do the tour. Um, he'd taken the tour originally and he was then unable to do it. I think he'd been offered another tour that was kind of better for him professionally. So he took that. That's pretty standard. And he asked me if I could kind of do him a solid and take over with this other tour. And I said, yeah. And it was two weeks uh, driving a band from Seattle around Germany and Austria uh, on their, like it was their first time they'd ever been over to, to Europe and ever been over to Germany. I'd never met them. I knew nothing about them um, and I turned up and flew into Prague picked up the van that I was driving and then drove to the airport and picked them up and they they're just the nicest people they've got a record coming out pretty soon they're called Smoky Brights um, and they're kind of I guess like very Fleetwood Mac kind of influenced like very traditional kind of rock and roll like 80s inspired kind of Roland synthy hardware synths and just really like great kind of big choruses and really easy listening rock and roll Drove all day for a cancelled show Slept in the van nowhere to go At least tomorrow I'll see the coast I mean, I don't know how well they do in the States. I think they do pretty well in their kind of, in the sort of Washington state area and surrounding states. But in terms of over in Europe and the UK, like when they came over to the UK, they, you know, were playing shows in front of 10 people or whatever. And, and, but like never turned their nose up at it. You know, they were just so happy to be out of America and playing anywhere else where anybody would have them. Um, and it honestly was one of the greatest tours I've ever been on. And I've, you know, been lucky enough to be on tour buses and stay in hotels and all this kind of nice stuff. But this was like back to the roots of like driving a really crappy van, sleeping on floors, you know, and occasionally we'd have like nice Airbnbs and stuff, but um, they were just like the nicest people and made me feel so welcome having never met them before. And they were just great. And I think everybody should go check out their new record. Um, yeah. They're called Smoky Brights. What about social media and things like that? How can we see what you do? And also, where's your actual physical studio set up just in case anyone's nearby or looking for a studio to record in? So my studio is in Mansfield in Nottinghamshire. It's about 20 minutes from the center of Nottingham. It's called Phoenix Sound. Um, that's kind of goes for everything. So it's Phoenix Sound Recording on Facebook, Phoenix Sound on Instagram. Um, I, it doesn't have a Twitter cause I don't particularly like that platform. Um, but in terms of my personal stuff as well, just, uh, Hamish Dickinson or Hamish Aubrey Dickinson and you'll find me, uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. And then my studio website is phoenixsoundstudio.co.uk. Um, and amongst those, you'll find everything you need to know about me. Mm-hmm. 